Hello, and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Rob Lamorges. Who is rage-eating a turkey leg right now. <laughs> as well you should be. As well you should be. Welcome to the fourth episode in our series, Get Me Another Conan the Barbarian. And this week, we'll be discussing two sword and sorcery films from two really interesting and unusual filmmakers. One is the first film in this cycle to feature a solo female protagonist, and the other is the first and only animated film we'll be exploring in this series. We begin today with 1983's Hundra. First, Hollywood brought you the legend of Conan, the barbarian champion of men. Now comes the match, too great even for him, Hundra. Hundra, the action-adventure story starring the most exciting action actress of all time, Laureen Landon. Hundra, the beauty every man wants to be near. No man wants to have to fight. There is a seed of Hundra in all women. Now riding toward you, Hundra. Hundra was directed by Matt Simber and written by Simber and John Goff. Now, Matt Simber is, Rob, a really interesting filmmaker with a with a fascinating life and career. He was married to Jane Mansfield for a time in the 1960s, and he directed her in his first feature film, at, which was her last a movie entitled Single Room Furnished. In the 1970s, he directed numerous exploitation films, including several significant black exploitation movies, not the least of which being The Candy Tangerine Man. Uh, he also directed a fascinating psychological horror film in 1976 called The Witch Who Came from the Sea. And Rob, that is a movie I saw a few years ago for the first time, and it has stayed with me ever since one of my favorites i revisit it every couple years now uh, i came to it also in my adult years and it is both crass exploitation and also completely disturbing uh artistic character study of trauma uh back in yeah. the mid-70s when that was not as much of a thing um it's it's a real neat magic trick and a, a I think a very powerful movie. Oh, it's it's an incredible and unusual movie and it's really disturbing and you're right. It it was doing something in the mid 70s that has become more common now, you know, merging horror with trauma, but that was not the case back then and and it, it it's a movie ahead of its time which honestly is true of the movie we're going to talk about in a minute, Hundra, uh, I think is also a movie ahead of its time. Uh, I also want to mention, I have to mention that Matt Simber co-created Glow the gorgeous ladies of wrestling uh, and the character inspired by him on the Netflix series is played by Mark Maron. Oh, and if you, uh, I know they canceled it before it was uh, fully done, but that show is a lot of fun and you will get a lot of references to uh, the director character 
in Glow and his past uh, past films. Uh, it's which, if you know what you know, it's very fun. Uh, also, he created a special eight-minute visitor's intro to the United Nations that received a special commendation from the UN. Like this, this guy's just—he's—he's fascinating, and um, and and this is a fascinating movie. Hundred stars: Lorene Landon in the title role, as well as John Gaffari and Maria Casal. And Rob, this film is a journey. Yeah, this film when you watch it. You will believe it was made by a man who worked for the UN and also ladies wrestling. Uh, yeah, I think that's this, exactly it. This film has both elements in it. Um, it is wild. Yeah, it, it it really is. And I had never seen it before, and and experiencing it for the first time. I mean, I, I, I mean, I I went through some things. I I honestly went through some things over the course of the hour and forty minutes of this movie. Uh, oh my god. Um, I want to start uh, that Matt Simber said that he and John Goff rewrote the script for this movie the night before they started shooting and that every scene had to be a metaphor for the relationships between men and women. I believe that story because uh, you know how some films are just kind of William Golden uh, saying that you don't yeah. need subtext in a Conan, the barbarian movie which we disproved while talking about Conan. But a lot of Absolutely. these other films, that would be true. Uh, is it possible, Chris, for subtext to just become text? Because if so, I think it's Hundra. Yes, and it happens in Hundra. Absolutely, definitely. Um, we, we start with a tribe of women living deep in the forest, and we're told by voiceover that these women sought isolation in order to escape the tyranny of men. And... and I, I, I don't want to use the word Amazon because these are not the super heroic Amazons of Wonder Women. These feel like real women. Uh, they have shunned the company of men except for those times when they must procreate to continue their tribe. And what happens when they uh, when they wind up with a male son? Because they're not yeah, always when, a female When they son. have a male son, they take him to the city to be adopted. They, 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 they bring males to the city to be adopted. And there's this scene early on where the women are gathered around a tent and one of their number is giving birth inside. And there's an audible groan when the word comes back that it's a boy. Yeah. This is a movie with a strong feminist streak. And it's honestly the type of movie that if it were more widely known, would provoke outrage in certain quarters of the internet, and you'd have a particular breed of commentator crying about it in front of a bookshelf full of He-Man figures um, on their YouTube channels. Like it's, it's. This is going to set people off. And, and uh, honestly, I think it would also set people off on the other end of the political spectrum for well, other yeah, elements of so this true. movie. Where yes. it, it, I think it would not fit um, certain politics on the left today either. It, it, which no. is what makes this such a, a strange bird uh, in that way. It, it really is. It, it, it's. Um, I, I should mention a couple things. First of all, the, the movie was shot in Spain, in the same area that Conan the Barbarian was shot, and it utilized some of the props and costumes left over from that production. Like they actually bought some of the props and costumes that were in storage and used them for this movie. And as a consequence, there's a gritty realism to this world 
that feels completely authentic and that I don't think we've seen in one of these films since Conan the Barbarian. Like it's, it just feels so real. There must've been something about Spain in this time period where sword and sorcery movies, uh, are, are good to shoot there. I know, and you don't see it because it got covered up with the rotoscoping, but I, I believe that uh, Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings, the live action stuff was shot in Spain uh, that they rotoscoped oh, really? over. Oh, interesting. Uh, but, but enough about Bakshi for now. We'll we'll get there. We'll get to him yeah. in a little bit because he, he is uh, the key to our next film, which we'll talk about. But first, we've got Hundra. I mean, there's so much, there's so much to get into. Among these women, their greatest warrior is Hundra. And she is the oldest woman in the tribe to have not born a child and is chided by her mother and teased by her younger sister by this for this fact. And not only has Hundra not given birth, she's never been with a man at all and seems to have no desire to whatsoever. She actually rejects the concept of motherhood. And she tells her younger sister, the younger sister should have two children to make up for the one she won't have. And in a cruel twist of irony, there is a... A line said here in jest about uh, Hundra can't let her younger sister be with a man before she, as the older sister, is. And that plays out to yeah. horrifying effect very soon. But before we get there, as you're talking about the setup, and this is one way I think it is very different from Conan and a lot of the other sword and sorcery movies, is that this really is showing an idyllic community. Look, from the point of view of the community, it's idyllic and perfect. Um, even Conan's village as a child, it, you don't get that from it. You know, he's there with his family, no. but it, it certainly isn't presented as like a Garden of Eden. This very much is a, a Garden of Eden or the Shire, and it is about to be uh, ruined and punctuated by violence uh, very soon. Yes, Yes, because one day, when Hundra is out hunting, the tribe is attacked by a group of men under the standard of the bull. Uh, that's that's a key thing uh, for later. The, the women fight bravely, and but are ultimately defeated and slaughtered. And, and when I, I mean, this opening fight sequence with the women defending the village, I mean, holy God, is it amazing and tragic and upsetting because they 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 are they are fighting for their lives and you can see it in their faces. It doesn't feel like some kind of gladiator contest. It feels like the real deal. And when they lose, it is absolutely gutted. First of all, with just the the visual aspects of the direction for this sequence, um, there's a lot of slow motion. There are there's a lot of wide angle lenses happening as well um, to not only give you a little wider feel, but to, I think, intentionally distort the picture in ways that are unsettling. Um, it doesn't look like uh, a funhouse mirror or anything like that, but it certainly doesn't look like normal human vision either. And it just helps to give that that heightened sense. Uh, and I and I think also um, in a way to help remove the audience just slightly because this is violence um, kind of like, uh, you know, when Scorsese or someone shows just when you yeah. don't cut away from someone getting a beat down and it stops being um, cinematically exciting and it just becomes kind of gross. That is what this is. And it's so yeah. just the stuff that's happening is so disturbing that I think, having a little bit of a stylistic flourish 
again, to separate us, to, to allow us to know it, it is a movie at this point and uh, just to give us that breathing room. Yeah, I mean, we've seen scenes like this before where the village gets attacked and inevitably the main character is the last survivor. I mean, we've, we've seen it in Conan, we've seen it in The Beastmaster, uh, Ator the Fighting Eagle, but this is brutal and unsparing in a way that even the attack on the village in Conan is not. Yeah, this this really turns into the last village on the left. It, it does, it, it really does. And, and Hundra's younger sister... First of all, she has got an incredible moment where she proves that how badass of a warrior she is. But unfortunately, you know, she too is brutally killed and and the victim of of sexual violence before that. It is it and 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 you're like at one moment you're like, "Oh my god, this this chick's amazing." And you're like, "Oh my god, this is the most tragic like it it is it is truly upsetting." So again, I should say this is a movie that pulls no punches in terms of its violence including sexual violence, but it is not employing that violence for the purposes of titillation. It is a brutal world. And 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 if you're someone who that is a trigger for you, it's maybe not the movie for you, um, but it is done in an exceptionally affecting way. Yeah, and I, I truly thought that her sister was going to somehow get out of this to then tell Hundra and that they might go off together, and boy, was that wrong. It really no, starts that this... Was, that was, alas, not to be. Hundra comes back to discover the tribe is in the midst of being slaughtered, and she ultimately has no choice but to flee, and is pursued by her attackers, which leads to one of the most incredible sequences in this film, where after a long pursuit, she turns around and takes on the 16 pursuers, one by one, until she escapes. And I swear to God, Rob, every time an arrow or dagger went in one of those bastards' heart, I actually cheered. I referred to this sequence in my mind as the 300 sequence because... Yeah. And and just even yeah. the setup where they're, as she's being chased, and I think you're getting some more of the voice over there, they're talking about... She was chased day into night into day again, like nonstop. And then she finds the perfect spot in this clearing with the yeah. certain types of rocks or whatever that will provide cover for her. And then it is a badass, just brutal action sequence where it's like seeing. It's fantastic. It's like seeing, I mean, obviously the action's different, but it's like Bruce Lee taking down a hundred dudes in. Uh, Enter the Dragon or something, except this is yeah. it feels a little more down to earth because the stunts feel more like real people just swinging swords and things as opposed to it's not balletic at all. It is just no. it's like direct and and to the point. Yeah, and there's there is a scene where where she she comes across a guy and starts rage eating this yeah, turkey leg, which you know like who was uh, they, they were they were cooking, and uh, she crush a guy comes up behind her to try and crush her with a rock, and she never lets go of the turkey leg, but with one hand like forces him down and crushes him with the rock, and it's fantastic. If you don't believe a woman can eat a turkey leg in a way that says "fuck you." fuck off and die you are wrong because yeah. it happens in hundra and it is one of my favorite moments from the film it, it is great it is totally great uh now the last of her tribe hundra goes to seek the advice of a wise old woman who tells her that she must procreate to rebuild the future of her people 
And this is where the movie takes one of several big hard turns. Uh, Because following the the visit to the old woman, Hundra, well, first of all, there's a short battle with a, a, a little person. Uh, which is a bizarre little vignette where she she fights this little person. Um, and apparently Matt Simber decided on a Friday that he needed little people for a scene to be shot on Monday. And he gave the producer the weekend to find seven little people, which is apparently not that easy in rural Spain. But the producer did it, and they shot the little people on Monday, and Simber did the makeup himself. Oh, that explains a lot. Um, it is... Yep. <laughs> and this is the first part where... Up until this point, which is, you know, if you were looking at it from an American studio perspective, you would say act one of the film is getting Hundra to go off on the quest that Oh Ancient One has sent her on. Yeah, she's got to find someone to uh, to be the father and of a it's baby. It's been fairly unified in tone and theme and story up to this point. And now all of that's going to get blown out of the water. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. like, it... <laughs> Hundra starts as one film, and then it becomes about 18 films uh, going forward. Yeah. And yet... And they're all interesting. That's the thing. I'm fascinated by all of them. But it it is... That's why I said at the outset, it's a journey. I, I will say, it never... The one thing in saying that is that the film, for me, never starts working against itself, necessarily. Um, it's not like it's doing things later that contradict what it was trying to say earlier, it starts delivering the same message in, in very different and bizarre ways that, you know, maybe sometimes aren't as congruous from our modern lens. Hundra's new quest is that of finding essentially a sperm donor. It's strange and it's fascinating. The first man she comes across is this boorish a-hole who attempts to have her way with her and Hundra is having none of that. Uh, she kicks the guy's ass in front of this group of women who like live with him and sort of serve him and a bow and scrape to him. And she actually says, she has this great, she spits out the line, see what you grovel to. And it's fantastic. And I, I, I think I texted you, Hundra's like Conan the Barbarian meets the girl with the dragon tattoo. Yeah. And I, I will say with the costuming, as far as this for her, compared to many other women in other types of films like this from the era it's it's not as it's not as skimpy revealing it looks like something that you probably could fight in and yet at the same time this is yeah. a movie that will have uh TNA in it because i guess it feels the need to satisfy that as well you know it reminds me a little bit in that way of uh slumber party massacre doing one thing because you want to and perhaps doing another because you have to and so there are yes. incongruities maybe like that after all um but it is yeah hundra herself strikes a very different like she has a very different look than the the two main characters from sorceress last week who are you know these uh you know, uh, kind of you know, playboy playmate type of, of women. Um, and Hundred does not feel like that at all. Yet there is this scene, this extended scene of her riding her horse uh, naked uh, in, in the surf. And it's, uh, you know, so there is, yeah. it's kind of having its cake and eating it too, in a sense. The thing about that in particular is while watching it, and I, look, this is just my feeling. Others will have a different feeling. 
it is still presenting her in that moment as strong and majestic on the horse. It's almost like she is a moving statue. I won't say that that means that it's zero male gaze, but it it does feel more admiring than leering to me, at least. It's I agree. Not, it's I agree. Not and you know, de- it's not de-elevating Hundra in that moment as much as maybe it could have. No, it, 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 you you're right. I, I I had the the note that it comes across as like a sort of classical statue. Uh, come to life like in that scene which again uh is is not to say that it's entirely devoid of 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 male gaze but it's it's done in a different way than in some of these other movies that that we've watched hundra makes her way to the city at which is actually ruled by the bull cult uh and there's a temple there that basically serves as a brothel for the local warlords and the movie is very clear in this like Oh yeah, they're, they're the religious leaders of the, but they're really pips. Yeah, and she knew she was coming here because the uh, she yes. was actually sent here, and this was an interesting little bit where she knew that the 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 whatever the bull cult murdered her entire village and tribe, and that she was being sent here to try to find a man from the bull tribe to impregnate her. She did not like this, and I believe the ancient one told her they wiped you out essentially let them replenish you. Yeah. And there is that notion, which we've seen in other films and is not as common of the good and bad. Um, there is no perfect and, you know, you can't have one without the other. She has a confrontation with the men of the temple almost immediately. And that leads to this extended chase across the rooftops of the city, which is fantastic. Like it's, it's the, the stunt work is all great. There's a, there's a scene where she, she falls and crashes through the ceiling into the house of the local healer. The local healer is the first man she's come across. Who's not a complete and total a-hole. So Hundra decides, naturally, he will be the one to impregnate her. And he's basically Bronze Age McDreamy. He's got the he's got good hair, you know, he's he's the catch of the yes, day. Yes, and at the same time, he does not like Hundra's wild look. And so she decides that she needs to um perhaps get a glow up so that she can snag this guy. And here's where the, the movie takes another turn. Yep. She goes to the temple and the women of the temple to sort of teach her the ways of of seducing a man. And, I, and first of all, I'm like, you know, like, dude, you, you should be lucky if Hundra even looks your way twice. She befriends one of the women from the temple, Drachmia, who agrees to teach her how to be a woman, in quotes. As, and Hundra agrees to teach her how to defend herself. So now the next section of this movie is this kind of two-way Pygmalion with the two women giving lessons to one another. It is a legit makeover sequence. I mean, Conan never took yeah. a mud bath. Uh, you will get that here with Hundra. Yeah. And it is... Um, it is interesting. It really is, and and it's this movie is such an a, a, of all the movies we watched for this series so far. This movie is the most curious artifact because you can't. It, it defies being put in a box. It changes. It like transforms itself so many times that it, it's fascinating. And and eventually, Hundred does succeed in seducing Bronze Age McDreamy, and discovers in fact that she likes to have sex and she. You know, she's talking about it and she's like, oh, I want to do this again and again and again. Uh, and and there's a moment where Drachmia is accosted by several men in the street. And at first, despite Hundra's training, she's unable to defend herself. 
But fortunately, Hundra shows up at the last minute and inspires Drachmia to bite one of the guy's faces off. Yeah, it's an amazing uh, moment. And and this is where one thing I do like about this movie is the, the relationship between these two women. And it ebbs and flows. It yes. is not a straight line. It's not like, oh, now this she's turned a switch and now she's going to be 100% on the path to being like Hundra. No, there's backsliding, right. there's going around, there's still uncertainty. She's not she's not sure that they can that they can live and win being like this. And so it's not a straight line, but I, uh, and I know this is crazy because it's in a movie like Hundra, but in a way that I feel is actually very human. Yes. It it, it yeah. is often convenient for the story, but it just doesn't feel that way uh, to me at least in watching this. Um it just kind of feels a little more real. Absolutely. Eventually, Hundra has the baby, and uh, the baby, the existence of the baby is betrayed to the, 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 the high priests of the temple by Drachmia. And, and there's this moment with, where, like, uh, you know, she, she gives Drachmia the most withering line where she says, quote, remain safe, woman. And it's just wither. Now, what she doesn't know is that the, the high priests of the temple have captured Drachmia's son, that, that it is forbidden for women of the temple to have children. Uh, Drachmia had a son and has been hiding him, and they captured the son, and that's how they get yeah, to Yeah, and this is all, earlier it was set up that um, at the temple, all of the chieftains who are, by the way, uh, a multicultural melting pot of men who all want to turn women into whores and uh and have them be objects for them so it's uh it, it is and i think very pointedly uh doing that because these films again often are not uh multicultural melting pots of uh of uh casting but in this instance they had set up that hundra would not bow down before the men they have this whole thing where they make the women bow down and then bow to the bull god and now that they've got hundra's uh baby they're gonna try it again yeah exactly that and and drachmia it's her who goes and rescues both children she rescues her own son as well as hundra's infant daughter and she takes the infant daughter to the temple to show hundra that the baby is safe and knowing that the baby is safe then hundra goes on a rampage that is an incredible fight sequence and you have this bit where where bronze age mcdreamy throws hundra her sword and not only is it in the air for long enough to have hundra have flashbacks of the murder of her people there is the most amazing sound effect that goes along with it as it tumbles through the air it is absolutely incredible literal hero moment in the film for her and it is her, Absolutely. her kicking all of the chieftains' asses and killing them is also very inspiring to the other slave women who are around, who they had on hand to watch them subjugate. Hundra is a way to really put it to them so that no one else would try this again. Uh, this backfires. Yes, yeah, so the women <laughs> of the temple rise up, and it is it is... I mean, they actually, they have the high priest. Hundra doesn't kill the high priest. The women of the temple smash the hell out of that son of a bitch. They rip him apart. And by ripping him apart, I mean they sit on his face and <laughs> smother and murder him. It's insane. Very, um, like, Lord of the Flies almost. In- yeah. Oh, we well, should mention that almost all of this sequence plays out in slow motion. And it works 
amazing yeah uh, and i think it's not most of this movie is not slow motion the beginning raid on hunter's village where everyone was murdered was slow motion and then you get it again here in the uh taking down the men responsible for it um even though they weren't necessarily the men who rode into the village they were the ones who sent them out yeah they gave the order there are people who will be like oh there's aspects of this that they will that they'll be like hey this is not for me and i get that but it's really a movie that is not trying to be for everyone and as as a consequence uh can really it, it really has something to say uh, several things to say in and it's just it is just fascinating and i'm you know i i i'm not surprised at all that it came from the same director as the witch who came from the sea because it it has there are aspects of it that are terrible and absolutely like soul crushing and then there's aspects of it that are you know punch the air like it's like holy shit this is great yeah this you would have never been allowed to do this movie with studio money never never the end of the film hunter goes off she decides she's not going to stay in the city and you have this moment where drachmia's son who's like a toddler you know like you know maybe like three four five i I don't know ages of children i can't tell (laughs) children by the way that it's like i have no idea um but like she gives us a very he gives a very gentle kiss on the forehead to hundra's infant child infant daughter and hunter responds to that by saying they will respect one another that leads me into just one minor thing about this movie that I want to say, which is I I believe this is also a movie that you can get on like mystery science or something like that, where they will just, if you want to, you could 100% mercilessly make fun of this movie. Um, And, and look, there's some movies like that and I can understand it. And if, if that's how you enjoy things, bully for you. But this is one instance where I think that, often that laughter or mirth, if you will, uh, comes from when things are combined that are not normally combined and not knowing how to process it. Yeah. So the easiest thing is just to go, well, that's not how you normally do it. So this must be bad. And therefore I can laugh at it. Um, and so, you know, I personally don't see that movie in this way, but I know that others probably, do and or will um i do think it's uh you know not necessarily warranted in this case if you're looking i agree I, there's there's a, it's a big difference between this movie and a movie we talked about a couple weeks ago uh ator the fighting eagle which which i i loved but i love for its yes. cheesy saturday yes. afternoon you know uh matinee kind of thing here it, this is something different there's and, and um it's interesting. According to Matt Simber, the film's producers essentially talked themselves out of a deal for a wide release by holding out for too much money. Um, and and Simber also claims that Arnold Schwarzenegger and Dino De Laurentiis saw Hundra and it inspired them to do Red Sonja, a movie we'll be talking about later in this series. We will be talking. We we were so fascinated by this movie. We decided uh, that down the road uh, in, in the, later this year, we will be doing uh, Get Me Another Indiana Jones. And Matt Simber and uh, Lorraine Landon immediately reteamed for another film shot in Spain, Yellow Hair and the Fortress of Gold. And we are going to definitely... Uh, explore that movie as part of our Get Me Another Indiana Jones series. Uh, and I'm excited t- to watch that because I haven't seen that movie. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm ready for that one because I, I want to see what these two do again. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because this is this is it's a fascinating movie. But before we get to uh, to to more Simber uh, uh, Landon collaborations, we have our second film today, which comes from another very interesting filmmaker, uh, animator Ralph Bakshi, also from 1983. This is Fire and Ice. In an age of myth and legend, the world trembles before the power of Necron. Master of evil, ruler of ice. Against him stand Tigra, princess of Firekeep, and captive of the ice demons, Larn. Tigra! Last of a mighty warrior tribe. And her only hope of escape. And Dark Wolf, mysterious avenger, and sworn enemy of the ice tyrant. Their courage will be tested. The challenge must be met. The final battle between the armies of the cold and the keepers of the flame is about to begin. Fire and ice from the visual imagination of Ralph Bakshi and the dazzling artistry of Frank Frazetta. A fantasy adventure from 20th Century Fox. Fire and Ice has a really interesting collection of people working. First of all, the film is a collaboration of Ralph Bakshi, who had directed animated features including Fritz the Cat, Wizards, and the 1978 animated adaptation of The Lord of the Rings, and illustrator Frank Frazetta, whose artwork of Conan was used on numerous paperback book covers in the 60s and 70s and really is the definitive Conan artist. And Bakshi and Frazetta together created the characters of this film and the overall look. The screenplay was written by Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway, two very significant Marvel Comics writers who had both written Conan stories for Marvel. Roy Thomas is, in fact, the creator of the character of Red Sonja, who debuted in issue 23 of Marvel's Conan the Barbarian. And the two later co-wrote the story for the film Conan the Destroyer, which is a movie we'll be discussing later in the series as well. So there's certainly a lot of Conan DNA in Fire Nights with Frazetta, Thomas, and Conway all involved. Other notable people involved in this film include James Gurney, who would later go on to write the Dinotopia novels, Peter Chung, the creator of Aeon Flux, and self-described painter of light, Thomas Kincaid, who did some of the background paintings for this film. And I got to say, they are incredible. The film features the vocal talents of William Ostrander, Maggie Roswell, Steve Sandor, Stephen Mendel, and Susan Tyrell. Uh, The film opens with this sultry voiceover telling us how at the end of the last Ice Age, Juliana, the Queen of Ice Peak, and her son Necron are sending forth glaciers to plunge the world into endless cold. And a couple of things right off the bat. The relationship between Juliana and Necron feels very much in the spirit of Morgana and Mordred from Excalibur. Yes. The only power that stands between them and global domination is King Gerald of Firekeep. You know, you'd mentioned to everyone involved with this, I think that... Uh, for anyone who's seen other Ralph Bakshi films, um, and this is after he'd made his switch from more uh, real-world bound settings into fantasy realm settings uh, yes. for various reasons, uh, 
Uh, this one really does feel much less of Ralph. It feels like Bakshi is trying to service getting Frazetta and that world onto film. Uh, it, it, it feels less of the Bakshi DNA as far as, um, you know, this thing really has no humor in it. The character designs clearly are, you know, Frazetta inspired. Oh, absolutely. If you're doing this, that's what you're going to do. Um, and th- th- this isn't a criticism of the film. It's just this one, I think, stands out from Bakshi's uh, oeuvre, if you will. Yeah. Uh, because because of the collaboration and the nature of it, uh, it really feels like he has partnered with someone who he's he's trying to help bring their vision to, to the screen. Uh, and, that you know, clearly, I'm sure Bakshi was helping make lots of decisions. It just feels that he was probably doing that in service of. Yes. Um, Although it does utilize a technique that Bakshi used yes. in a uh, number of his other films, uh, rotoscoping, in which the actors are, are shot with, like, the live-action actors are shot, and then their movements are traced onto animation film cells. And it gives the the characters a very fluid and very natural movements, and I think it works to great effect here. Um there's a visual dimension to this animated film that would have been impossible in live action filmmaking at this particular time. The sense of scale in the opening with this glacier bearing down on the village is incredible. And it's really, really effective. Um, as we get into the film, the, the, the village that, that is destroyed in the opening where, um, the glacier is coming at it and just kind of wiping everything out uh, is the village. Uh, one of the villagers, Larn tries to valiantly defend his home, but to no avail. And the glacier sweeps through and followed by Nick subhuman warriors who appear to be of vaguely Neanderthal esque species. Um, and you know, we've seen movies start out with the, the, the hero's village being wiped out, but it is, the use of a glacier <laughs> to do that is absolutely unique. It for certain. And the, the look of this film, um, you'd mentioned the rotoscoping. Um, at the time I, I'd checked out some of the reviews at the time were very unkind to this movie for various reasons. Uh, I saw people referring it to it as knockoff He-Man, like, you know, filmation. And the animation is nothing like, nothing that. like, He-Man. I mean, the- it is nothing like He-Man is classic filmation. Like it's kind of the yeah. culmination of, of what filmation was doing for for a while. It, it is absolutely nothing like this at all, despite the fact that they came out around the same time and would have been, you know, kind of cont- working simultaneously. This was not a an, a He Man knockoff in any way. No, I mean the 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 rotoscoping, which may have been used to help, um, you know, bring costs down on the animation end. But in this instance, you are getting far better uh, fluidity of motion. Which in a movie like this, where a, this is a visual first film, absolutely, the story is rather simple, and in some stretches, you could even say non-existent. Um, yeah, again, for, for me, that's not a criticism. I mean, it, when you're watching an animated film or a film of any kind, uh, I mean, you you hear a lot of people talking about you have to see uh, Avatar: The Way of Water in the theater because it's a the the visual feast of it all. And that uh, you go along well, you with do. the ride, yeah. And, and I would actually say, on a very different scale and in a very different uh, medium, that's the case for a lot of this. You're not you're not here for um, you know complex uh, character story, etc. This this is a film with zero subtext. 
uh, at least in my view. Uh, well, I know the the one subtext you're going to talk about. Well, yeah, uh, we'll get to that. There is some subtext, yeah. but but before that, yeah. I, to me, the film feels like it. To me, it feels like uh, how in classical mythology and folklore, uh, stories are designed to explain aspects of natural phenomena. And this feels mm. like it was, oh, hey, let's design a story to explain the end of the Ice Age. Let's design a mythological story to explain how the Ice Age ended. And it was like, oh, this is kind of what you'd come up with. Uh, I also want to mention that there's a sort of the theme of climate as a weapon. Uh, and not just by the ice people, but the fire people as well. Um uh, honestly, it's more relevant now than when this movie was made as we see uh, our climate sort of just literally kind of weaponizing itself against us. Yeah, it reminds me, this was actually, uh, I know there was a, a G.I. Joe made-for-television animated film where the whole thing was about the weather machine and Cobra trying yes. to get it. I think Yes, there were few, the weather it, dominator. The 80s, yeah, and and I there were a couple other instances of this. I think uh, controlling the weather as a weapon was was in the air in this part of the 1980s. Uh, not yes. sure why. Uh, I uh, believe, for the record, that was the second GI Joe miniseries. The first one was the five episode Mass Device uh, story. The, oh, the yes. second one was the Weather Dominator, and then later they did um, they did the Pyramid of Darkness. Um, and like I said, I've said on this podcast a number of times, I don't remember a single teacher's name I had before high school, but I remember all of the plots of the G.I. Joe miniseries <laughs> and the order in which they happen. After the attack on Lauren's village, uh, Queen Juliana sends a delegation to negotiate a peace with King Gerald, although the terms are not ones he will submit to. But what Juliana really wants is to kidnap Gerald's daughter, Tigra and force her to marry his son, although that plan may be ill-conceived for reasons we'll talk about in a bit. I think we need to talk about the fact, though, that Tigra spends the entirety of this film in the smallest, most flimsy bikini can you can imagine. If we're talking about male gaze, if this were live action, it would not provide effective covering whatsoever. No, and this is one where I guess... This doesn't necessarily go against uh, Bakshi, but it is 100% Frazetta. If you yeah. look at uh, the paintings of women that he has done, it is no surprise uh, what Tigris' costume, or lack thereof, is in this film. Tigris captured by Juliana's forces, and to her credit, she promptly escapes. It's not that she is a character without agency, and that's I think that's significant. It's just that she's dressed for mud wrestling. But here's the thing. Here's the, 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 my real issue with the film, more than anything else, is I cannot think of a movie with a more ineffectual protagonist than Larn. He is set up yeah. to be our main character, and he, until the very, very, very end of the film, he literally fails at everything he does. It's like... There's that that thing that people say about like how Indiana Jones doesn't really make an impact on the plot of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I don't necessarily buy that, but in this case, it is absolutely true. Nothing Larn does works at all. And it's, it's worse than that. I actually had noticed they present when, uh, when they're on the lamb, if you will, in the wild, <laughs> not in the kingdom. Yeah. 
this is an extremely dangerous place. I mean, if you put your oh, arm yeah. in a log, uh, a giant like slug thing's going to try and eat it off. Yeah. There's danger don't put your everywhere. Arm in a log. Yeah. And so you probably don't want to play a game of grab ass with someone when you're <laughs> trying to escape and then force them into a lake that you don't know what's inside of it. Because guess what's inside of it, Chris? There is a giant, a giant squid in the lake. Yes. Yeah. That they, yeah. yeah. That, that's, yeah, this, this one, place Lauren. is designed to kill you. <laughs> and it's not, you know what? I, I don't care how good she looks. You know, you got to focus on the task at hand, man. Well, and he's old enough to know. Like, clearly, right. his village would have taught him, oh, uh, everything's going to try to kill you outside of this village. Um, yes. That, that would clearly yes, be a lesson. <laughs> Uh, of course, due to the fact that, you know, that, that there's a giant squid, uh, Larn is separated from Tigra, and he meets up with the masked hunter Dark Wolf. Now, Dark Wolf is awesome because he's basically prehistoric Batman. And he says cool things like, don't hunt for death, boy. It finds us all soon enough. And, you know, he's got this cowl over the top half of his face. You can't see his eye, like the pupils of his eye. He is he is, is prehistoric Batman. And Larn soon becomes his Robin. Yeah, and uh, for those uh, Frazetta fans out there, you already know this, but uh, Dark Wolf is, it feels like Death Dealer with the serial numbers filed off so that yeah. he wouldn't lose the copyright to his own character, Death Dealer, but he put yeah. a similar type... <laughs> There are, there are poses in this movie where it, it really is kind of they're redoing a Death Dealer painting. Um, yeah. And then totally. uh, also, uh, and Dark Wolf then later, it looks very similar to um, uh, what uh, Glenn Danzig did in his Veronica comic, Jaguar. Oh, comic, yeah, yeah. With, of which he had Frazetta do, do cover paintings for. So I'm guessing they were... Uh, they were okay with things, and I, he also put out a Death Dealer comic, I believe, too. So, oh wow, uh, okay, yeah. Th- this this is all going in. Yeah, the king also has a son. In addition to to yeah. uh, uh, Tigra, his daughter ha- has a son uh, who's named uh, Taro, and and the son who who figures into the story a little later is basically uh, he's basically Conan. He's basically the the Frazetta's Conan uh, as an animated film character, like straight up. Anyway, Dark Wolf and Lauren, they nearly recover Tigra, but she finds herself taken to the house of a beautiful woman living in the woods. Now, kids, <laughs> I have some advice for you. If you're in a sword and sorcery film situation and you find yourself, you meet a beautiful woman living in a random house in the forest, I'm telling you, she's a witch. Straight up. Just be on your guard. She's a witch. Yeah, probably, uh, probably not good to accept tea time with the witch. Um, yes, you know, be polite and excuse yourself. It's the way to go, and and yeah, that's absolutely uh, the the scene with with uh, Tigra in the witch's house. It's one of those. It's an interesting thing because if this were live action, it would have pushed the movie past a PG rating. Because the movie has a PG rating. This was before PG-13. Um, and Because it took me a moment to notice that in the witch's house, you have the walls decorated by severed heads and skulls. And in in animation, it it's highly stylized. But if you were just, like, it would be like, it would be a horror show if you had it in, in live action. 
Yeah, and you weren't the only one who it took a little time to notice that, because uh, if Tigra had opened her eyes, maybe she yes. wouldn't have uh, laid down. But I, uh, there, it's really cool, though, what the witch does in the sequence, where she kind of essentially knocks out Tigra, and then plucks yes. a hair from her head, uh, which she drops into her cauldron, and then to uh, get information about her. She, she doesn't know who Tigra is and wants to know how is this going to be advantageous for her. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And then what happens is, of course, she, she tries to make, you know, fairly soon after she's introduced, she is killed by Necron's subhumans who then recapture Tigra. She wants to, she wants to turn the situation to her advantage and it very much turns against her. When she's killed... Her body in the house burst into green flame that attract Lauren's attention. And Lauren, at this point, Dark Wolf uh, disappears so abruptly from the film that I think there must have been a scene cut. But Lauren arrives and he proceeds to have a conversation with the witch's corpse, which if I had seen this movie when I was a kid, if I had seen this movie when it came out or shortly thereafter on video or whatever, that would have haunted me for the rest of my life. And I think is uh, it really is super effective and it shows why I think um, in this film, at least, uh, you know, having a perfectly, you know, classic Hollywood narrative doesn't really matter because that scene right. is amazing. And really that I'd say the whole sequence, you know, getting to the witch's hut, through this um yes because it's so having a someone who's so powerful that their corpse is still there and animated and yet they can't go they can't go beyond that she can't go to get her own revenge against necron uh and this is how larn can extract the information he needs is by promising revenge because well that's what he was going to do anyway um right exactly for him it's it's no different yeah. not that he's going to succeed because he doesn't succeed in anything he does <laughs> yes um there's almost this like uh evil dead quality in this uh, uh to her talking to yeah, him like totally. kind of like half half there half not yeah absolutely um lauren you know then he decides to 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 go northward uh, towards Ice Beak to try and rescue Tigra. And at the same time, King Gerald sends his son Taro uh, to negotiate a peace. So we get to Ice Peak. And there's a cool bit where he, like, there's a boat going up, like the, the there's the, the delegation boat, and he hangs on the back, and it's kind of cool. Uh, it's frankly the coolest thing he does in the movie because he doesn't do much that's actually cool. Uh, he's so, it, it's so amazing. At Ice Peak, Juliana presents her son Necron with Tigra as a possible bride. Now, we need to talk about Necron a bit. We haven't yet, but now is the time. Uh, Necron is the most queer-coded villain I've ever seen in any movie ever. Now, a bit on what I mean by that. Hollywood has a long history of villains who are subtextually coded as queer. They go back goes back to the Hayes Code era uh, when por- positive portrayals of LGBT characters were explicitly forbidden, and so villains therefore were often portrayed with queer characteristics. None more so than Necron. Yeah, it 
And they really do it all. Not only does he reject Tigra, who Tigra is trying to um, placate him in this way where if she can agree to marry, can this forge a peace? And you get the feeling like she might be biding her time until she can, you know, put a dagger in this dude's heart. But she's playing right. along, playing the game. Uh, Queen Juliana is is very happy that she's playing that game. And then Necron is rejects her in such a way that you know that he is disgusted by the idea of her. Well, he says to his mother, and I quote, Next time you present me with one of your little sluts, mother dear, I'll squash you like a bug. And he literally proceeds to throw Tigra away into a garbage pile full of human bodies. Yeah. Uh, And that's not a nice pit of human bodies, by the way. No, no. And then later he does meet with Taro, the, the, who is acting as an emissary from, from the, the fire keep. And he taunts him by saying, as to your sister, well, I must admit until this moment, the idea of mating with her filled me with loathing perhaps i should reconsider your sister is not wholly unattractive as lesser beasts go uh he then proceeds to kill uh taro <laughs> as yeah. well with, with uh, and evil you know mind it's powers. just it, it's with evil yeah, he's mind got powers. cool mind powers i will say that yeah. um it is so over the top in its its queer codedness that it was just like oh my god uh, Lauren makes his way to Ice Peak to rescue Tigra, uh, and and he you know, again he fails at that because he fails at everything, and he has a battle with Necron, uh, which he of course loses because he loses everything, um, but not before Necron says to him, "You interest me," and then starts to remove his shirt. Um, listen, this uh, this is not me reading into things. This is this is this is subtextual if there ever was it. Yeah, uh, it may, maybe so. Maybe so much text that the that the uh, subtext starts going away, and it, it just it's right staring you right in the face. It's just right there. Yeah, it's yeah, um, it, and it's fascinating. You know, again, it, there's certainly a lot of queer coded villains in animation, uh, but my God, uh, you know, uh, Necron takes the cake uh, as as it were. Lauren is only saved from Necron by the sudden reappearance of Dark Wolf, who drags him out of Ice Peak without having saved Tigra. And back at Fire King Gerald threatens to release lava from the volcano that he's basically sitting on in order to destroy the Great Glacier. The way this is framed is it's some kind of like prehistoric version of a weapon of mass destruction and should only be used as a last resort. Dark Wolf does convince the king to let them attempt to rescue Tigra one more time using dragon hawks, which are basically pterodactyls. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Dark Wolf is who you want on your side, for sure. Uh, yeah, he's he should be the main the hero of this movie. He yeah. is the hero of this movie. Lauren is... Uh, well, oh boy! His his descendants in the future, Chris Larn's descendants. Uh, I don't know if you know this. Uh, it's canon. Uh, they eventually settle in Staten Island and become detectives. Uh, <laughs> well, that all and, makes yes. sense now. It's it's it, and, they, they uh, he works a on the bride killer Island. case, and yes. <laughs> 
If any listeners who have not listened to any of our previous series, we are referring to a movie, um, He Knows You're Alone, which we talked about in our Get Me Another Halloween series, uh, and I cannot recommend uh, our Get Me Another Halloween series and that movie enough because it has the most ineffectual detective of all time, uh, and I think Lauren is almost certainly uh, an ancestor of of Detective Staten Island. <laughs> um, Dark Wolf, on the other hand, is able to kill Necron. Uh, thankfully, he didn't leave that task to Larn. Uh, Larn actually does succeed in doing one thing in rescuing Tigra. He gets he gets uh, her on uh, on on one of the dragon hawks, and the kings are the king opens the lava and and destroys Ice Peak and Queen Juliana and the subhuman army. And amidst the cataclysm, Larn and Tigra find one last subhuman alive and decide to spare him. And Dark Wolf watches as they kiss. Not the subhuman Lauren and Tigra kiss. Um, and, 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 and that's the end of our picture. It's a really interesting movie. I think the animation is terrific. Yeah. And, and in that moment, uh, just to, again, take credit away from Lauren, uh, Lauren's going to kill that guy. And Tigra is the one who, who yeah. stays his hand and, and essentially says, we need to start new and learn to live together. Yeah, because well, I guess they they release the weapon of mass destruction of the lava. So I, I get you know obviously this this ends the the reign of the the ice age. But I, I feel like it might have taken out a lot of the people in the fireland as well. So okay, now we have to start order, and this is the beginning of our modern, you know, our modern history sort of begins with Larn and Tigra, which tells you all you need to know about mankind. Yes. Uh... <laughs> Well, at least she she's fairly smart, so that that's probably where she yeah. is. She is she is, but he's he is um, the most ineffectual uh, guy ever. So you know, reality and humanity is somewhere in between. <laughs> Larn and T. Yep. Uh, yeah, like I I, th- I think the animation is terrific. I think the some of the backgrounds are 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 incredibly beautiful. I don't know if the story quite matches the technical achievement, but I think the technical achievement on its own. Uh, is very impressive and and is a movie well worth checking out if if these are your if these movies are your type of uh, if these movies are your bag which if they're not I don't know why you're listening to us yeah. talk about them but if they are 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 not uh, I mean this movie's worth checking out it's the both movies today are lesser known entries in this in this cycle but are really really interesting. yeah I mean Fire and Ice is a movie that you I just think you let it wash over you um, and you appreciate. Yeah what's there uh because you know you don't get the detail in the animation that you would in a frazetta painting which shouldn't be a shock uh but the designs are cool uh the movements are cool um you get some really interesting shots with you know characters coming in and out of like fogs and smoke and there's just a lot of really really fun stuff this is one that i wish and maybe i i didn't look it up this is one that I think you really would like to see restored uh, in some sort of uh, higher, yeah. higher rated version. You know, a little 4K action for this uh, would be nice. Yeah, I don't think there's a 4K. There is a Blu-ray out from I think from Kino, mm-hmm. um, but uh, it's it. I don't think there's a 4K version. But I'd love to see it. You know, kind of get the deluxe treatment. I think that brings us to the end of today's episode. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll join us again next week on Get Me Another Conan the Barbarian when we'll look at two more films from legendary producer Roger Corman, Deathstalker and The Warrior and the Sorceress. 
Thank you so much for listening. Again, we are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at GetMeAnotherPod. And tell your friends about the show. Tell your enemies. Tell people you have neutral feelings about. And join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, Get Me Another.